guys, good morning. And uh, here to tell you that questions you never thought you could ask in church begins again today. Let me explain to you what's going to happen here today. We're inviting you to pull out one of these, all right? And in about two minutes, we are going to put a phone number up on the screen. And we are asking you to text in any question that you have, anything goes related to God, Christianity, the Bible, fellowship of faith, or any way life intersects with it. And I am going to receive those questions anonymously. And what I'm going to do is the best job I can of simply answering them right here, right now, on the spot. And here's why we do it. We think asking questions is good. We think that if we're taking our faith seriously and actually trying to come to terms with God in his will, questions will inevitably arise. And I've met so many people and have been part of churches in the past where questions were viewed as something taboo, as though it expressed a doubt that should be better left unspoken, or it should go into territory that we shouldn't ask. I'm here to tell you today that's not the kind of church we are at Fellowship of Faith. If you have questions, we want to hear them. And everything is fair game. The weird, the strange, the bizarre, the convoluted, the crazy, the heretical, the irreverent. Questions that come from faith. Questions that come from doubt. Questions that come from skepticism. They can be simple and straightforward. They can be hard and complex. But I want to encourage you today, whether you're a Christian or not, and if you come here with questions about God, Christianity, the Bible, fellowship of faith, and the way it intersects it with life, ask him here today. Because there's nothing worse than just shoving them down and leaving them to gnaw in unanswered places. So let's jump straight to the phone number. And here it is, 1-815-314-0363. Again, text any question you have right now to 815-314, that's 0-F-O-F, and we are just going to start getting them, and uh, we'll take them away. As this uh, starts to stream in, Neil prayed at the 9 o'clock service for the questions to come in in overwhelming capacity then as well. And I just counted them up between services. It was like 52 or something. I think we got to like 25 of them. So um, thanks, Neil. And uh, <laughs> along those lines, start sending them. Let's see what we get. All right. What happens to a child who is not baptized because the parents are not believers. So again, what happens to a child who is not baptized because the parents are not believers? What happens to that child is that they miss out on what God always intended of having an amazing relationship begin to be nurtured at even the age of infancy with the living God. Parents, what you do matters for the spiritual life of your children. However, I suspect within this question is, 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 is another question behind the scenes that goes, well, if they weren't baptized, does that mean they go to hell? No. 
No, you do not have to be baptized to go to heaven. You do not have to be baptized to be entered into the kingdom of God. That does not denigrate the importance of baptism, but be careful of associating the two like that in your mind. Let's go to another. How do you deal with anxiety and the ugly in the world and fears of death when you know you're supposed to have faith in God? Speaking from someone who has dealt most of his life with deep, constant anxiety. I'll just answer this one personally by saying it's faith in God that has been my strongest defense and counterattack against the anxiety that wants to tear me down. And that faith will at times be shaken. That faith will at times be taken out from the knees. And sometimes you'll find yourself churned back into those places of deep anxiety from things within or the ugly from without. But the way that I found to deal with it is by actually doing it. Lord, I can't control this. Lord, I'm afraid of what if. Lord, how can... Oh, Lord, I throw myself in your grace. I throw myself in your mercy. Catch. I love that passage from 1 Peter. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Learning how to do that is easier said than done. But if you're in the same place that I've often been, I can tell you, you certainly can learn how to do it. Where is heaven? <laughs> now, you know what? It, it's common, isn't it, to say heaven is up? To which I always kind of came back with, well, like, what if you live in China and up is a different direction from McHenry, Illinois? I mean, is it everything surrounding the universe? Now, here's where heaven is at. Heaven is where God is at. Someone asked a related question at nine, and let me address it again. Heaven is not a great piece of real estate that God happened to fall upon when he was creating the heavens and the earth and went, Man, I'm taking that piece of land for myself. What makes heaven heaven is that you are in the presence of God. And so the closer you come to God, the more you come into what we call or think of is heaven. Because everything good from life to joy, to peace, to glory, to honor, to safety, to the intimacy of his presence. These are things that emanate from God like radiation from the sun. So when you are in the throne room or presence of God, you are in the bombardment of love and life and joy and peace and glory and honor and intimacy with him. Draw near to God Heaven is that way. Good question. I struggle with the whole biblical timeline and how that ties in with dinosaurs. Yeah, you're not alone. Others have as well. To address some of the issues around the statement, some people look at the biblical timeline and say six to 10,000 years. 
Others look at the biblical timeline and say something much longer. Some look at the current prevailing wisdom in the scientific community today and go, the billion-plus timeline year of the universe is correct. Others look at that timeline and go, no, I think the universe is much younger. What I encourage you to do in this is to investigate the data. What does the Bible actually say and demand? Why do scientists hold this theory, and what are the issues with it? Because people, scientists and Christians alike, have come down on all sides. From saying that the dinosaurs did exist before humans, to many others saying, no, we believe that there's evidence that they existed concomitantly with the human race. And I'll let you dig into that because you didn't ask my opinion. <laughs> all right, how about this? Why is it that God is sometimes so patient at putting a stop to certain wickedness? For example, terrorism, violent crimes against humanity. And we can add so many more, can't we? Why is it that God is sometimes so patient at putting a stop to wickedness? The Bible actually gives a very explicit, direct answer to this. And the answer is that God does not want to punish anybody. God does not want to judge anybody, but in the Bible's words, wants all people to come to repentance. And repentance, if it is true repentance, is not something that can be forced or coerced. What's mind-boggling to me is that the God of the universe, who is holy, who is just, and who is offended by sin and wickedness more than we are in our corrupt ways, chooses instead to tolerate it and to be patient with those who propagate it because he wants them to be saved. And I'll tell you, there's been a lot of times where it's like, God, would you just... Right? until I start looking at the ways that I propagate wickedness too. And then suddenly the patient God becomes a little, bit, a little bit more appealing to me. And hopefully in your own reflection to you as well. But yeah, great one, and that's why. Okay. 1 Corinthians 15. It states the only way of salvation is by believing in the crucifixion and does not include baptism. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Salvation comes by faith in Jesus Christ, not by the religious rites, sacraments, and ordinances. And while God can use those as powerful tools and ways and means to bring his grace, those are not central or necessary, if I can use the language, for salvation. When I was at youth group one time and we were reading Genesis and there was a theory that there was a canopy over the earth made of water, do you think when the flood came that that shield disappeared and the rain from the flood was just that shield or was it just rain? Okay, I don't want to read that again, but did you follow it? 
the ancient world, ancient cosmology, seemed to have, and I'm talking outside the field of the Bible right now, seemed to have this understanding that there was this canopy of water that the heavens held back, and in the ancient myths, the gods or the forces or whatever it would be would open windows that would allow the rain in. And people have long speculated, how much does Genesis draw on that imagery versus going its own way? And the debates are arguably fascinating. I don't think that the biblical account of the flood demands an ancient cosmology of some water canopy. At the same time, the account of the flood is clear. Water came down from up there, water also came up from up here. And it leads you to speculate and wonder what would happen if not only all the water, not just in the clouds, but even in a room like this today, were to start to condense and come down, but if all the water in the great deep and the aquifers and the water tables and the oceans were simultaneously to come up as well? Somewhere in the middle of that, I think. Got that one. Let's see. How about this? How do we really experience heaven? At death? Or do we just sleep until revelations? I'm going to try to interpret. I think what the person is asking is, after we die, what is heaven like before Christ comes again? And again, remember, this question in my answer is predicated that heaven is not forever. And because I know some of you think you have misheard me, I will say it again. Heaven, as your typical Christian envisions it, is not forever. The main hope of Christianity is new heaven and new earth, both combined physicality, and resurrection from the dead. And this is what the Bible promises when Christ comes again. But in the meantime, in the middle, the time we exist right now, when loved ones who have gone before us, what are they experiencing? Is it something conscious and awake? Or is it something that's more unconscious and asleep as though they blink and they wake up and it's judgment day? Christians have come down on both sides of this. I have found myself far more inclined to the former, to thinking that heaven is a conscious experience where you know what you're experiencing in some kind of arguable real time. And the reason I go that way is there's just enough mention at various places in the Bible of people in heaven consciously responding to God, asking questions of God, and interacting with God that seems to indicate it is more than a subconscious or sleep kind of state. Now, I'll be straight up. I could be wrong. It could be being asleep. And I'll tell you what, naps are fantastic. And I got to believe that a nap in God's house has to be ratcheted up five more notches. Either way, hold on to this promise that Paul makes. Whatever it's like in the details, know this. His words, not mine. It is better by far.
Okay, uh, a few here that seem to be of the same vein. Do good people that don't believe in God go to hell? Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And why was God so evident in the Bible and seems so hidden today? Coming out in these questions is this phrase that I want to address. Good people. One of my favorite passages in the Gospels is when this teacher comes up to Jesus and he says, good teacher, addressing Jesus. Good teacher, dot, 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 and proceeds to ask his question. Jesus' reply is fascinating. Why do you call me good? Jesus himself says this, why do you call me good? There is no one good but God. Now, I know on one hand, that's going to raise all sorts of questions about Jesus, but I want to take it somewhere else. If that's how Jesus himself answers that question, how much more does that response apply to me and you? Why do you assume there's good people? Why do you assume you're good? I would argue the Bible has a very different look on who you are. I think of passages like this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I think of passages like this, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. Good people, as the Bible originally describes them and as God intended them, do not exist. At some fundamental level, we are not good. You're right, good people don't go to hell. But we are not good. Hence the issue. And why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Forgive me, I don't mean to play lightly with what you're saying, but I think it's an important corrective. We assume people are innocent, and surely many people are innocent of the atrocities they have to face specifically. But there isn't a one of us who deserves blessing from God. Each of us deserve nothing but the making of our own sinful nature and what that inevitably reaps. The message of the Bible is not that God saves good people from harm. The message of the Bible is that God saves bad people from what they deserve. But because God is patient, we suffer in the meantime. Why was God so evident in the Bible? And why does he seem so hidden today? It's fascinating that people around the world would not share your perspective. Christianity today is exploding in the emerging world from places like Kenya to India to China to the Middle East. And people will recount stories firsthand, and I've heard them, of ways God is miraculously intervening in their lives. And people in the States will say it the same way. 
It's fascinating to me that here in 2017, we know more about God than people who lived in 100 A.D. It's backwards. It seems like that shouldn't be the case. Do you realize until recently people did not have these things? You would have to go to a church or a monastery and people would only own a scrap. Growing up, the family had a Bible. Today, a family has 17 and infinite online resources to the revelation and presence of God? Sometimes I wonder if God asks the question, let me put it this way, why are people so hidden today when I have made myself evident to them in abundant ways? Okay, so we're getting some heaven things coming in here. And uh, this one has a please respond on it, so we, so we better hit it, right? <laughs> Will there be tacos in heaven? <laughs> yeah, but they're shrimp and you'll be allergic to them, so it's just... <laughs> Will there be tacos in heaven? No, there will not be tacos in heaven because there will not be digestive systems in heaven or mouths in heaven or stomachs in heaven. You are a spirit. Your body is rotten in the ground. You will not eat in heaven. But at the new heaven and new earth and the resurrection of the dead, you better believe it. <laughs> All right. Will I be able to tell dirty jokes in heaven? Or will I automatically know new jokes? All I have are dirty jokes. You know, the way that heaven is described is that there is a purging that takes place. That the things that we find funny now, we see from a different light. And that's why the Bible invites us even now to think in a heavenly kind of way. What is it like to take on God's way of looking at truly what's funny and truly what's not? So not only do I think you won't be telling dirty jokes in heaven, I think if you heard them, they would be quite lame. Yeah. Will there be humor in heaven? You'll be there. You better believe it. Is orange the new FOF color for the day? For five weeks. You may have seen sitting around us, we got like Orange Nation over here on stage right. And uh, if you're wearing the orange shirt today, um, Stand up. So what's with all the orange today? You can sit down now. That's cool. Thanks, guys. This is Team Oasis. Here at Fellowship of Faith, we, we partner with this amazing mission organization called Oasis for Orphans in Kenya. And Kenya is a country that's racked not only by poverty and political issues, but also the AIDS crisis, and there's orphans left in the wake. And what this agency or mission organization does is seek to just develop holistic help, physical help, spiritual help, educational and vocational, and just the love and protection that comes from a family unit that surrounds you. And this group that you saw standing up in about five, six weeks in the middle of July 
is participating in the McHenry um, Run Walk, the 510K, that's going to be happening here. And they're running as Team Oasis. They're running in those orange shirts. They're running to bring awareness to the cause. They're running to make people aware of the needs in Kenya. They're running to raise funds that I'll tell you about a little bit more today. That is what the Orange Nation is about today. All right. Can family members look in on us from time to time in heaven? And I assume what you mean, the family members are in heaven looking down and not that the family members are down looking up. So let's go with the idea that you have a family member, they are in heaven, can they look on us from time to time? I don't know. I just don't know. The inclination, of course, is to say no. But with the exception of one spot that I can think of in Luke 16, it never talks anywhere about a separation being fixed. You see instances of Samuel in the Old Testament coming back as a spirit. It's weird. I don't know what to make of it. But there you go. I want to encourage you to something, though to be connected with your loved ones again is something that I think all of us who believe in heaven yearn for. But it's not your loved ones who are protecting you and looking out for you. God is. Let your loved one enjoy heaven. Put your faith in Christ You'll see them there again someday and you'll be reunited in a way that death will not separate. But in the meantime, let God be the one you turn to to look in on you, to guide you, to surround you. Okay. Do you help someone in need regardless of what it may cost you and even if they may have other motives, do you protect yourself and family, or do you help because, and I'll read this literally, it what you should do? You following the nature of the question here? Many of us, I think, have been in that place where you see someone in need, but you know that by helping, or at least you fear that by helping, it may make you vulnerable in some way. It may lead to harm coming back around you, or it may fuel something that feeds a false motive in them. You know, there isn't a formulaic answer I can give today to every specific situation of to what degree you're called to help someone or in what method you're called to help someone or refrain. The Bible says this, love them. Love your neighbor as yourself. And love goes beyond an emotional feeling. Love needs to be expressed in tangibility. But what that tangibility looks like is going to change from scenario to scenario. The help that you might provide one person tangibly might be the most unloving thing you can do to someone else, even though the help is expressed in the exact same way. Way. Because how we love needs to be tailored to who we're loving, which means you got to get invested. 
You can't just write a check or say a prayer and walk out of their life. If you are truly trying to live that spirit of loving that person, then you need to learn what it means, and I mean intimately, what love and lack of love in action is going to look like in that situation. And I encourage you this. If you're in a tricky spot right now and you don't know what to do, lean into trusted, mature believers around you. Hey, come talk to me if you want. And I'd love to help you process it out loud and maybe we can find what that path might look like together. Okay. Who are the 144,000 sealed in Revelation 7, verse 5? The book of Revelation is weird, right? And it talks about this 144,000 who are sealed for God, and it actually names them by by tribes, 12,000 of arguably almost every tribe of Israel, but not all of them. You can go look on your own. People have interpreted this in different ways. Some have looked for and expected a literal 144,000 of some sort to rise up in the last days. I am far more inclined to see the number is symbolic for the entire people of God expressed in this numeric kind of way, referring to me and to you and to everyone who is called on the name of the Lord. So if you have faith in Christ, good news. What I believe Revelation is teaching is that you are among the 144,000. And no, it is not limited to that exact number. Now, what if we are missing books of the Bible that are crucial to our understanding of God and his word? Yeah, and we are missing a lot of who God is and things that Jesus taught and what his word happened to be. John himself in the Gospel of John says, if everything were to be written down that Jesus had said or did, there wouldn't be enough room in this universe, kind of my ad lib, for all the books that it would contain. The point of the Bible is not that it gives us everything there is to know about God in his way. The point of the Bible is it gives us what we need to know for his way of salvation. God is deep and infinite and vast, and there is so much that he did that we just won't know. Not until we get there. But don't let that scare you from thinking that something is missing that's crucial along the way. Because the Bible in its testimony says, I have given everything I need to give you to know the essence with clarity of my way of salvation. So let it do what it wants to do in that way. All right, let me reload. How do you know the difference between good and evil? Three basic ways. And I think they need to be held in tension as a sort of trifecta. How do you know the difference between good and evil? Step one, you see what God has actually said and what God has actually revealed. And if God says it's good, faith invites us to trust God that it is actually good. 
And if it says it is evil, God invites us to trust him that it is actually evil, no matter how good it might actually look. And so at one level, he reveals that to us, to give us that, that, that crucial piece of guidance along the way. But we know that people are very capable of misinterpreting this thing or bending it to their will so it says what they want it to say. Which leads us to number two, your conscience. Jesus would talk about this, the Bible talks about this, that God has written on each person's heart, whether they've never heard of the Bible or ever seen this thing, what his will is in terms of good and evil and right and wrong in every day. God's given you a conscience to guide you, and believers, he's poured his spirit on you too. Lean into that and don't dismiss what it has to say. But of course, the problem is we know how we're all capable of searing our consciences, right? We know how to do this, how to harden our hearts, how to buffer it, how to put a, a callus over it to insulate it from sensitivity to right and wrong today. To which is why God gave us what's called the church. And the church is not this building. The church is a community of believers who gather intentionally in his name. God's given you these people to call you out, to bring collective wisdom to the renegade paths and the rogue ideas that we might stray. Except we all know how groupthink works and how easy it is for even a collective group to go the wrong way, to which is why God gives us the Bible, to be a corrective to that kind of thing every step of the way. So his word, your conscience and believers holding them in checks and balances, swirling together to illuminate the specifics of good and evil in any given day. And the church has been doing it ever since. All right. We had this one at nine, but I think it's an important one because it comes in with exclamation points. Why the beard? Why the beard? See that hand right there? Let me tell you the story of the beard. It's about 10 weeks ago. Got my hair cut, and I didn't like what they did with the sideburns. So I decided to kind of let it grow scruff out, you know, give it like two weeks, two, three weeks, something like that, until things kind of evened out and sanity was restored on my face. And it was about three weeks in when I hit the itch factor. Men, you who have grown beards or women who suffer with that, Calamity, you know what I mean, but that itch factor when it starts to come in a little thick and it was ready to go. But something happened that changed destiny that day. Tina looks at it, my wife. She comes up to me, and there's that like look in her eye. And it's that look I remember when we were dating. And she kind of pressed herself up against me and starts going like this. I. Love it. I love it. 
Now, do you know what you do when the love of your life and the most amazing human being who's walked Mother Earth presses their body against you and starts stroking your face? You keep the beard. And until she says otherwise, it's here to stay. Let's take one more. Is it possible that the Bible has been corrupted by the sin of humanity? Is it possible that the Bible has been um, corrupted by the sin of humanity? Those of you who know me know I always operate from a platform of going, of course. Anything is possible. It's fascinating with the Bible. This thing that we claim to be God's living, breathing word, this thing that we claim to be infallible, inerrant, basically true, trustworthy. Is it possible for it to be corrupted? You better believe it's possible. But possible and probable are not the same thing. And never make the mistake of thinking that just because something is possible, it therefore is and here is why I don't think what we hold today has been corrupted by humanity. Putting aside all the beliefs that I have that I think the Spirit of God guides the church and the Spirit of God guides the process and things that could be dismissed by someone who struggles with that or dismisses that, there are more copies of the Bible than any other ancient document that has ever existed in history. Of the New, Twest, New Testament, over 26,000 different manuscript traditions alone before the 10th century. And it's fascinating for the people who study these kinds of things. You can look at various manuscripts along the way and see different wordings here, different verses here, slight changes and aberrations in things along the way. It's fascinating when you look at these things, at no point is a major Christian doctrine ever called into question. At no point is the identity of Jesus, the nature of God, his way or work or salvation plan in this world ever compromised. The reason this kind of study is so boring is because the changes that you see are things like this. This one says Christ Jesus, while this one says Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but my faith is shaken over that. And what's fascinating to see is that even as certain documents might take things and might go on a minority position, the overwhelming evidence coming from different copy traditions, from different people in different places, stand as this uber-corrective of what the Bible actually has to say. Let me ask you. If there's 26,000 different copies coming from 26,000 different copyists in 26,000 different places, all of ancient origin, and four of them have a different verse going a different way, is that a corruption? Yeah, you better believe it. Does it lead you to go, oh my gosh, how will we ever know what the Bible had to say? Or is it easier and more logical to think, you know, they probably heard it wrong or maybe had their own agenda. But the great corrective of God's Spirit working through the church 
has kept, and I will use the word intentionally, pure, trustworthy, and reliable, despite human fallibility of what God has to say. The questions sit on this iPad in volume that I feel like I haven't even begun to scratch. Way to go in that. Wait, I mean, seriously, way to go in that. If I didn't get to your question today, I got good news. We're doing two more weeks of this. Two more weeks of questions you never thought you can ask in church. And the way I'm beginning next Sunday is picking up with the questions that went unanswered today. So I invite you to come on back. And maybe I'll get to it next Sunday or the Sunday after, depending on the volume i got to see. And I invite you to do this. Bring this again as well. Because we'll be opening live texting again too. To field even more questions you might have and explore a little bit more what God might have to say. So I want to invite you to rise. Band is going to come forward. Lead us in a closing worship set, but as they get prepared on stage, I just want to invite you. Let's take a moment. Let's take a moment and pray. God in heaven, we come to you and bear our questions, our doubts, our insecurities, our worries. Our curiosities and our pleas for insights, revelation, or illumination, or guidance. From the beginning, your book records you as a God who speaks, a God who listens, and a God who is present. And I pray through these questions that we've asked here today and the others that churn in our mind that you guide us and reveal yourself. Show us, God, your way. And not, Lord, just for curiosity's sake, but that through it we may know you more. We may come to love and know you more. In your name.